Chapter 16, Part 3b of An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation by Jeremy Bentham. Chapter 16, Part 3b Genera of Class 1. We now come to consider the domestic or family relations, which are purely of legal institution. It is to these in effect that both kinds of domestic conditions, considered as the work of law, are indebted for their origin. When the law, no matter for what purpose, takes upon itself to operate in a matter in which it has not operated before, it can only be by imposing obligation. Now, when a legal obligation is imposed on any man, there are but two ways in which it can, in the first instance, be enforced. The one is by giving the power of enforcing it to the party in whose favour it is imposed. The other is by reserving that power to certain third persons, who, in virtue of their possessing it, are styled ministers of justice. In the first case, the party favoured is said to possess not only a right as against the party obliged, but also a power over him. In the second case, a right only, uncooperated by power. In the first case, the party favoured may be styled a superior, and as they are both members of the same family, a domestic superior with reference to the party obliged, who, in the same case, may be styled a domestic inferior, with reference to the party favoured. Now, in point of possibility, it is evident that domestic conditions, or a kind of fictitious possession analogous to domestic conditions, might have been looked upon as constituted as well by rights alone, without powers on either side, as by powers. But in point of utility, it does not seem expedient, and in point of fact probably owing to the invariable perception which men must have of the inexpediency, no such conditions seem ever to have been constituted by such feeble bands. Of the legal relationships, then, which are capable of being made to subsist within the circle of a family, there remain those only in which the obligation is enforced by power. Now, then, wherever such power is conferred, the end or purpose for which it was conferred, unless the legislator can be supposed to act without a motive, must have been the producing of a benefit to somebody. In other words, it must have been conferred for the sake of somebody. The person, then, for whose sake it is conferred, must either be one of the two parties just mentioned, or a third party, if one of those two it must be either the superior or the inferior. If the superior, such superior is commonly called a master, and the inferior is termed his servant, and the power may be termed a beneficial one. If it be for the sake of the inferior that the power is established, the superior is termed a guardian, and the inferior his ward, and the power, being thereby coupled with a trust, may be termed a fiduciary one. If for the sake of a third party the superior may be termed a superintendent, and the inferior his subordinate. 
This third party will either be an assignable individual, or a set of individuals, or a set of unassignable individuals. In this latter case, the trust is either a public or a semi-public one, and the condition which it constitutes is not of the domestic, but of the civil kind. In the former case, this third party or principal, as he may be termed, either has a beneficial power over the superintendent, or he has not. If he has, the superintendent is his servant, and consequently so also is the subordinate. If not, the superintendent is the master of the subordinate, and all the advantage which the principal has over his superintendent is that of possessing a set of rights, uncorroborated by power, and therefore, as we have seen, not fit to constitute a condition of the domestic kind. But be the condition what it may which is constituted by these rights, of what nature can the obligations be, to which the superintendent is capable of being subjected by means of them? They are neither more nor less than those which a man is capable of being subjected to by powers. It follows, therefore, that the functions of a principal and his superintendent coincide with those of a master and his servants and consequently that the offences relative to the two former conditions will coincide with the offences relative to the two latter. Offences to which the condition of a master, like any other kind of condition, is exposed, may, as hath been already intimated, be distinguished into such as concern the existence of the condition itself, and such as concern the performance of the functions of it, while subsisting. First, then, with regard to such as affect its existence. It is obvious enough that the services of one man may be of benefit to another. The condition of a master may therefore be a beneficial one. Extends exposed, therefore, to the offences of wrongful non-investment, wrongful interception, usurpation, wrongful investment, and wrongful divestment. But how should it stand exposed to the offences of wrongful abdication, wrongful detrication, and wrongful imposition? Certainly it cannot of itself, for services, when a man has the power of exacting them or not, as he thinks fit, can never be a burden. But if to the powers by which the condition of a master is constituted, the law thinks fit to annex any obligation on the part of the master, for instance, that of affording maintenance, or giving wages to the servant, or paying money to anybody else. It is evident that, that in virtue of such obligation, the condition may become a burden. In this case, however, the condition possessed by the master will not, properly speaking, be the pure and simple condition of a master. It will be a kind of complex object, resolvable into the beneficial condition of a master, and the burthensome obligation to which is annexed to it. Still, however, if the nature of the obligation lies within a narrow compass, and does not, in the manner of that which constitutes a trust, interfere with the exercise of those powers by which the condition of the superior is constituted, the latter, notwithstanding this foreign mixture, will still retain the name of mastership. In this case, therefore, but not otherwise, the condition of a master may stand exposed to the offences of wrongful abdication, wrongful detrication, and wrongful imposition. 
Next, as to the behaviour of persons, with reference to this condition, while considered as subsisting. In virtue of it being a benefit, it is exposed to disturbance. This disturbance will either be the offence of a stranger, or the offence of the servant himself. Where it is the offence of a stranger, and is committed by taking the person of the servant, in circumstances in which the taking of an object belonging to the class of things would be an act of theft, or, what is scarcely worth distinguishing from theft, an act of embezzlement, it may be termed servant-stealing. Where it is an offence of the servant himself, it is styled breach of duty. Now the most flagrant species of breach of duty, and that which includes indeed every other, is that which consists in the servant's withdrawing himself from the place in which the duty should be performed. This species of breach of duty is termed elopement. Again, in virtue of the power belonging to this condition, it is liable on the part of the master to abuse. But this power is not coupled with a trust. The condition of a master is therefore not exposed to any offence, which is analogous to breach of trust. Lastly, on account of it being exposed to abuse, it may be conceived to stand, in point of possibility, exposed to bribery. But considering how few and how insignificant the persons are who are liable to be the subject to the power here in question, this is an offence which, on account of the want of temptation, there will seldom be any example of in practice. We may therefore reckon thirteen sorts of offences to which the condition of a master is exposed, viz. 1. Wrongful non-investment of mastership. 2. Wrongful interception of mastership. 3. Wrongful divestment of mastership. 4. Usurption of mastership. 5. Wrongful investment of mastership. 6. Wrongful abdication of mastership. 7. Wrongful detraction of mastership. 8. Wrongful imposition of mastership. 9. Abuse of mastership. 10. Disturbance of mastership. 11. Breach of duty in servants. 12. Elopement of servants. 13. Service-stealing. As to the power by which the condition of a master is constituted, this may be either limited or unlimited. When it is altogether unlimited, the condition of the servant is styled pure slavery. But as the rules of language are as far as can be conceived from being steady on this head, the term slavery is commonly made use of wherever the limitations prescribed to the power of the master are looked upon as inconsiderable. Whenever any such limitation is prescribed, a kind of fictitious entity is thereby created. An inequality of an incorporeal object of possession is bestowed upon the servant. This object is of the class of those which are called rights, and in the present case is termed, in a more particular manner, a liberty, and sometimes a privilege, an immunity, or an exemption. Now these limitations on one hand, and these liberties on the other, may, it is evident, be as various as the acts, positive or negative, which the master may or may not have the power of obliging the servants to submit to or to perform. 
Correspondent, then, to the infinitude of these liberties, is the infinitude of the modification which the condition of mastership, or, as it is more common to say in such a case, that of servitude, admits of. These modifications, it is evident, may, in different countries, be infinitely diversified. In different countries, therefore, the offence characterised by the above names will, if specifically considered, admit of very different descriptions. If there be a spot upon the earth so wretched as to exhibit the spectacle of pure and absolutely unlimited slavery, on that spot there will be no such thing as any abuse of mastership, which means neither more nor less than no abuse of mastership will there be treated on the footing of an offence. As to the question whether any and what modes of servitude ought to be established or kept on foot, this is a question, the solution of which belongs to the civil branch of the art of legislation. Next, with regard to the offences that may concern the condition of a servant. It might seem at first sight that a condition of this kind could not have a spark of benefit belonging to it, that it could not be attended with any other consequences than such as rendered it a mere burthen. But a burthen itself may be a benefit, in comparison of a greater burthen. Conceive a man's situation then to be such, that he must, at any rate, be in a state of pure slavery. Still may it be material to him, and highly material, who the person is whom he has for his master. A state of slavery then under one master may be a beneficial state to him, in comparison with a state of slavery under another master. The condition of a servant then is exposed to the several offences to which a condition, in virtue of it being a beneficial one, is exposed. More than this, where the power of the master is limited, and the limitations annexed to it, and hence the liberties of the servant are considerable, the servitude may even be positively eligible. For amongst those limitations may be such as sufficient to enable the servant to possess property of his own. Being capable then of possessing property of his own, he may be capable of receiving it from his master. In short, he may receive wages or other emoluments from his master, and the benefit resulting from these wages may be so considerable as to outweigh the burthen of the servitude, and by that means render that condition more beneficial upon the whole, and more eligible than that of one who is not in any respect under the control of any such person as a master. Accordingly, by these means, the condition of the servant may be so eligible, that his entrance into it, and his continuance in it, may have been altogether the result of his own choice. That the nature of the two conditions may be the more clearly understood, it may be of use to show the sort of correspondency there is between the offences which affect the existence of the one, and those which affect the existence of the other. That this correspondency cannot but be very intimate is obvious at first sight. It is not, however, that a given offence in the former catalogue coincides with an offence of the same name in the latter catalogue. Usurption of servantship 
with usurpation of mastership, for example. But the case is that an offence of one denomination in the one catalogue coincides with an offence of a different denomination in the other catalogue. Nor is the coincident constant and certain, but liable to contingencies, as we shall see. First, then, wrongful non-investment of the incondition of a servant, if it be the offence of one who should have been the master, coincides with wrongful detraction of mastership. If it be the offence of a third person, it involves in it non-investment of mastership, which, provided the mastership be in the eyes of him who should have been master a beneficial thing, but not otherwise, is wrongful. Wrongful interception of the condition of a servant, if it be the offence of him who should have been master, coincides with the wrongful detraction of mastership, if it be the offence of a third person, and the mastership be an beneficial thing, it involves in it wrongful interception of mastership. 3. Wrongful divestment of servantship, if it be the offence of the master but not otherwise, coincides with wrongful abdication of mastership. If it be the offence of a stranger, it involves in it divestment of mastership, which, as in far as the mastership is a beneficial thing, is wrongful. 4. Usurpation of servantship coincides necessarily with wrongful imposition of mastership. It will be apt to involve in it wrongful divestment of mastership, but this only in the case where the usurper, previously to the usurpation, was in a state of servitude under some other master. 5. Wrongful investment of servantship, the servantship being considered as a beneficial thing, coincides with imposition of mastership, which, if in the eyes of the pretended master the mastership should chance to be a burden, will be wrongful. 6. Wrongful abdication of servantship coincides with wrongful divestment of mastership. 7. Wrongful detraction of servantship with wrongful non-investment of mastership. 8. Wrongful imposition of servantship, if it be the offence of the pretended master, coincides with usurpation of mastership. If it be the offence of a stranger, it involves in it imposition of mastership, which, if in the eyes of the pretended master the mastership should be a burthen, will be wrongful. As to abuse of mastership, disturbance of mastership, breach of duty in servants, elopement of servants, and servant-stealing, these are offences which, without any change of denomination, bear equal relation to both conditions. And thus we may reckon thirteen sorts of offences, to which the condition of a servant stands exposed. Is 1. Wrongful non-investment of servantship. 2. Wrongful interception of servantship. 3. Wrongful divestment of servantship. 4. Usurpation of servantship. 5. Wrongful investment of servantship. 6. Wrongful abdication of servantship. 7. Wrongful detraction of servantship. 8. Wrongful imposition of servantship. 9. Abuse of mastership. 10. Disturbance of mastership. 11. Breach of duty in servants. 12. Elopement of servants. 13. Servant stealing. We now come to the offences to which the condition of a guardian is exposed. 
A guardian is one who is invested with power over another, living within the compass of the same family, and called a ward, the power being to be exercised for the benefit of the ward. Now then, what are the cases in which it can be for the benefit of one man that another, living within the compass of the same family, should exercise power over him? Consider either of the parties by himself, and suppose him, in point of understanding, to be on the level with the other, it seems evident enough that no such cases can ever exist. To the production of happiness on the part of any given person, in like manner as to the production of any other effect which is the result of human agency, three things it is necessary should concur, knowledge, inclination, and physical power. Now, as there is no man who is so sure of being inclined on all occasions to promote your happiness as you yourself are, so neither is there any man who upon the whole can have had so good opportunities as you must have had for knowing what is most conducive to that purpose. For who should know as well as you what it is that gives you pain or pleasure? Moreover, as to power, it is manifest that no superiority in this respect on the part of a stranger, could, for a constancy, make up for so great a deficiency as he must lie under in respect of two such material points as knowledge and inclination. If then there be a case when it can be for the advantage of one man to be under the power of another, it must be on account of some palpable and very considerable deficiency on the part of the former in point of intellects or, what is the same thing in other words, in point of knowledge or understanding. Now there are two cases in which such palpable deficiency is known to take place. These are, one, when a man's intellect is not yet arrived at that state in which it is capable of directing his own inclination in the pursuit of happiness. This is the case of infancy. Two, when by some particular known or unknown circumstance his intellect has either never arrived at that state, or having arrived at it has fallen from it, which is the case of insanity. By which means then is it to be ascertained whether a man's intellect is in that state or no? For exhibiting the quantity of sensible heat in the human body we have a very tolerable sort of instrument, the thermometer. But for exhibiting the quantity of intelligence we have no such instrument. It is evident, therefore, that the line which separates the quantity of intelligence which is sufficient for the purpose of self-government from that which is not sufficient must be, in a great measure, arbitrary. Where the insufficiency is the result of want of age, the sufficient quantity of intelligence, be it what it may, does not accrue to all at the same period of their lives. It becomes therefore necessary for legislators to cut the Gordian knot and fix upon a particular period, at which, and not before, truly or not, every person whatever shall be deemed as far as depends upon age to be in possession of this sufficient quantity. In this case, then, a line is drawn which may be the same for every man, and in the description of which, such as it is, whatever persons are concerned may be certain of agreeing the circumstance of time affording a mark by which the line in question may be traced with the utmost degree of nicety. On the other hand, when the insufficiency is the result of insanity, there is not even this resource. 
so that here the legislator has no other expedient than to appoint some particular person or persons to give a particular determination of the question. In every instant in which it occurs, according to his or their particular and arbitrary discretion. Arbitrary enough it must be at any rate, since the only way in which it can be exercised is by considering whether the share of intelligence possessed by the individual in question does or does not come up to the loose and indeterminate idea which persons so appointed may chance to entertain with respect to the quantity which is deemed sufficient. The line then being drawn, or supposed to be so, it is expedient to a man who cannot with safety to himself be left in his own power that he should be placed in the power of another. How long then should he remain so? Just so long as his inability is supposed to continue, that is, in the case of infancy, till he arrives at that period at which the law deems him to be of full age, in the case of insanity, till he be of sound mind and understanding. Now it is evident that this period in the case of infancy may not arrive for a considerable time, and in the case of insanity, perhaps never. The duration of the power belonging to this trust must, therefore, in the one case be very considerable, in the other case indefinite. The next point to consider is what may be the extent of it, for as to what ought to be, that is a matter to be settled, not in a general analytical sketch, but in a particular and circumstantial dissertation. By possibility, then, this power may possess any extent that can be imagined. It may extend to any acts which, physically speaking, it may be in the power of the ward to perform himself, or be the object of, if exercised by the guardian. Conceive the power, for a moment, to stand upon this footing. The condition of the ward stands now exactly upon a footing with pure slavery. Add the obligation by which the power is turned into a trust, the limits of the power are now very considerably narrowed. What then is the purport of this obligation? Of what nature is the course of conduct it prescribes? It is such a course of conduct as shall be best calculated for procuring to the ward the greatest quantity of happiness, which his faculties and the circumstances he is in will admit of saving always in the first place the regard which the guardian is permitted to show to his own happiness, and in the second place that which he is obliged as well as permitted to show to that of other men. This is, in fact, no other than the course of contact which the ward, did he but know how, ought, in point of prudence, to maintain of himself, so that the business of the former is to govern the latter precisely in the manner in which this latter ought to govern himself. Now, to instruct each individual in what manner to govern his own conduct in the details of life, is the particular business of private ethics. To instruct individuals in what manner to govern the conduct of those whose happiness during non-age is permitted to their charge, is the business of the art of private education. The details, therefore, of the rules to be given for that purpose, any more than the acts which are capable of being committed in violation of those rules, belong not to the art of legislation, since, as will be seen more particularly hereafter, such details could not, with any chance of advantage, be provided for by the legislator. Some general outlines might indeed be drawn by his authority, 
and in point of fact some are in every civilised state. But such regulations, it is evident, must be liable to great variation. In the first place, according to the infinite diversity of civil conditions, which a man may stand invested with in any given state. In the next place, according to the diversity of local circumstances that may influence the nature of the conditions which may chance to be established in different states. On this account, the offences which would be constituted by such regulations could not be comprised under any concise and settled denominations capable of a permanent and extensive application. No place, therefore, can be allotted to them here. End of section 23